The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We're going to read Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as his sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Our sermon today is entitled, He brought us out from there that he might bring us in. Deuteronomy 6.23 says, Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. In the late 1990s, I worked in the wastewater business just down the road here in Gulfgate. I was the lead operator of the plant owned by Florida City's Water Company. It was a private company which owned wastewater plants throughout Florida and it ran them well. Private industry can make a good profit off of such things while paying well and giving great service to their customers at low costs. Eventually, as always seems to be the case with intrusive government, 
Sarasota County decided they wanted a monopoly on the wastewater business within its borders. They already had several plants which they owned and operated. The service was not as good, the pay was not as high, and the cost to the customers was higher. All in all, it was a typical government project. Seeing how much Florida cities made in profit, the county greedily wanted to take them over as well, so that it could be added into their profits for the commissioners to spend as they wished. And so they eventually dug their hands into Florida cities and forced them to sell off their Sarasota plants. Having spent nine years, four months, and 15 days in government service in the United States Air Force, it was obvious what was coming. Waste, incompetence, and frustration for anyone who desired to do an honest day's work while watching those around him take advantage of the system to do as little as possible. Knowing what was ahead and before the transfer to the county, I left that employee and headed to Alaska to mine gold for the summer. The location I went to was on the 40 Mile River, a bit south and east of Fairbanks, and directly, directly on the U.S.-Canada border. The spot is so remote that the nearest town named Chicken, Alaska, and the reason why it's called Chicken is because they did not know how to spell ptarmigan, which is a bird you find up there. Chicken, Alaska, which had a year-round population of nine was up the river 17 miles and then a four-hour drive away. That was the nearest humanity. If you Google the location, you can delight yourself in the remoteness of the land and the beauty of the spot. There are bears, beavers, and mosquitoes in abundance. There at the claim, working from day to day, one would not have known if the rest of the world had collapsed, gone into nuclear war, or been destroyed by pestilence. There were no radios, there was no internet, and there was no way to contact the outside world apart from an emergency beacon if someone was in need of immediate medical attention. For me, I was brought out of a situation of impending doom and into a place of beauty, riches, and delight. It was not heaven, but compared to staying on with Sarasota County, it was close to paradise. For the residents of the Gulf Gate and the employees who stayed with the county, the service went down, the utility prices went up, and the pay of Sarasota County became the standard. Our text verse comes from Philippians 1, it is verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. After coming home from Alaska, I did various jobs. One was working right across the road from my house, restoring an old motel on the island. The travel to work took all of 10 seconds. I worked alone, and the pay, though not great, was enough to make the day worth the work. After a while, I started a retail business just down the road right here and enjoyed a couple years of that. During the time there and through the Lord's sure hand of providence, my heart was turned toward him and a hunger for the word of God, the Holy Bible, consumed me. Eventually, I had to close the store. I could no longer sell Buddhas and other things people would take home and pray to. It bothered me to even put the key in the door each morning. But what to do when you have a wife and two children? At that time, I got a call from C.S.T. Key Utilities Authority, the wastewater plant on the island that I live on, and one which I had worked at in high school. My old boss said that he needed to fill a position and wanted to interview me. I said, thanks, Art, but I never kept up my license, and so I can't be an operator with you. He said, we've already checked. Your license doesn't expire for 30 more days. If you come in, we will pay the necessary courses and for the renewal of your license. 
As incredible as it seems, the Lord had directed the events of my life to get me out of one sore spot and to lead me into a good job with good pay and which was right down the road from my house. While there, Art eventually retired and I took over as lead operator of the utility. It was a sweet deal. Great hours, amazing pay, a company car, and the best crew that one could imagine working with. However, the company was under obligation to be transferred lock, stock, and barrel to Sarasota County on a set date which had been agreed upon many, many years earlier. I was asked to stay during the transfer, which I did, but eventually I left the keys on the desk one day and told them it was enough. You see, the service went down, the utility prices went up, and anyone who desired to do a good job was left to do it alone. Not all county employees are this way, but it is the norm. The one who desires to do an honest day's work is the exception. With the transfer of the utility complete, I left there. I finished my degree at Southern Evangelical Seminary and was ordained as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ on 24 January 2010. For me, I was brought out of a situation of impending doom and into a place of beauty, riches, and delight. Being a pastor is not heaven, but compared to staying on with Sarasota County, it is close to paradise. Our first thought today is, and he brought us out from there. Today is Resurrection Day, 12 April 2020. The world is in turmoil, pestilence, real or imagined, fills the land, and the anxiety and stress level of the people of the world is exceedingly high. This isn't just in our own nation, but it permeates much of the world. Normally, to be a missionary in an isolated part of the world would be considered something only the hardiest and most dedicated souls would venture out to do. Like going into the middle of nowhere to mine gold, it may be that they have no contact with anyone for extended periods. But today, it seems that such a choice is not only the smart one, more so it seems to be the wise one. To be taken out of our present distress and to be placed in a location where none of this is even considered would be a delight and a relief. Like my time on the 40 mile, some of our missionaries are simply living their lives, sharing their knowledge of Jesus Christ and have very little care about how the rest of the world has devolved into a state of near lunacy. To them, those things are behind and are forgotten as they reach forward to those things which are ahead. For those of us who are sequestered away in our homes, we are living in a new reality which seems to consume our very existence. In this, we have a choice. We can be fearful, selfish, anxious, and stressed, or we can, as mature and faithful followers of Jesus Christ, submit to him, place our trust and our hope in him, and stand faithfully on the knowledge that he has brought us out. For those who have followed the sermons from Genesis through until Deuteronomy, the patterns have become increasingly clear as God continually weaves the lives and events of real human beings who really existed into the model and plan of redemption, which he has revealed and which he continues to reveal in the stream of human existence. Using Israel as a template or a pattern for what he would do in and through Christ for humanity, God brought this particular group of people out of the bondage of slavery under a harsh and brutal taskmaster and unto himself. The redemption of Israel from Egypt is a type or picture of the redemption of man from the bondage of sin and the control of the devil to the freedom of God in Jesus Christ. 
But Israel wasn't just brought out and granted entrance into the promise. That would have been insufficient to meet God's goals and purposes for humanity, as he says in Isaiah. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you shall be my salvation to the ends of the earth. No, what the Lord God did in, through, and for Israel is only a part of what he had determined to do for all of the people of the world. He brought Israel out of Egypt as a typological foreshadowing of his bringing us out of the power of the devil. But God didn't just bring Israel out of Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt and unto himself at Mount Sinai. It is the fulfillment of a promise made to Moses there on that same mountain. Moses was uncertain of his abilities and he was fearful of his appointment. It says in Exodus 3, but Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The Lord said that he would bring them out and he did. He kept his word and Israel was redeemed from the bondage. In this, he brought them to himself, carrying them along until they arrived at the sacred mountain. When Israel arrived, however, they quickly realized the terrifying nature of this awesome and holy God. In presenting to them the basis of his law, the Ten Commandments, the people were terrified. The reason must be twofold, although we normally only consider one aspect of the event from Exodus 19. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. During this terrifying display, the Lord thundered forth his commandments to the people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. From the intensity of the display and at the giving of the word, the people's natural and obvious response is recorded. From Exodus 20, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. This is the obvious and first reason the people were terrified. The splendor of the Lord was too great for them to behold and listen to. Relief was needed or they would die. But there is a second reason they should have been terrified, and it is the reason for the display of the Lord in the first place. It is because the word of the Lord, the demand of the law, and therefore the expectation of what would occur if the demand of the law was not met, was now a reality to them. 
The law cannot be separated from the lawgiver. The former is an absolute and perfect revelation of the latter. The nature of the lawgiver is revealed in his law. If Israel was terrified of the sight which they beheld, which was only a mere demonstration of his power, then how much more terrified should they have been of the words which issued forth from him? The words were not merely a demonstration of his power. They are an exact reflection of his nature. To violate his word is to come under his judgment. The power on display was to alert them to this and to bring them to understand what the consequences of violating his nature would then be. What you have seen at the giving of my word is terrifying because I am terrifying when you violate my word. Israel had been brought out of a terrible bondage. The yoke they bore was heavy and it afflicted their bodies until their bodies were broken and cast away while others would come and assume the burdens they could no longer bear. But Israel had been brought into an actually greater bondage than they had left. They had been brought under the yoke of the law. The taskmaster they were now to serve would not merely break their bodies, consigning them to the pit of death, but it would break their souls, consigning them to the pit of hell. If it were not for the provisions within the law which accompanied the giving of these Ten Commandments, which formed the basis of the law, none could have been saved. No, not even one. But in the law came mercy. The Lord gave Israel a system of sacrifices to atone for their wrongdoings and to provide remission of their sins. These provisions were offered through the Lord's grace and through His grace alone. The people had agreed to the covenant in advance, and they had done so without any such provision agreed to at that point. In Exodus 24, verse 7, at the renewing of the covenant, and before much of the law had been brought to the ears of the people, the word says, And they said, All that has said Jehovah, we will do, and we will hear. The promise to do came before the promise to hear. Israel had agreed to their own new and more comprehensive bondage. Thus, any infraction of the law is the fault of the people and is deserving of the entire weight and penalty of the law. Thus, any atonement for or remission of the sins of the people is then, by default, an act of grace. Does everybody understand that? Leviticus comes after the giving of the law or the initial giving of the law. All of the feasts of the Lord, all of the Day of Atonement, all of those things came afterward. They had agreed to put themselves into bondage without any provision of mercy at all at that time. They would receive what they did not deserve. It would be further an act of mercy. They would not receive what they did deserve. The bondage of Israel was complete at that time, even if the scope of it was not understood. But freedom within the law was also revealed a lamb for this sin, a goat for that sin, and a bull for this sin. There were grain offerings and fat offerings. There were offerings at certain times of the day, and there were offerings for certain days. We went through every one of them in the books of Leviticus and Numbers, every single word of which pointed to Jesus Christ. Everything pointed to Christ. The whole system was set up to provide relief from the terror of the bondage that the people were now in. And of all of these sacrifices and offerings, they together culminated in several special offerings, that of the red heifer and that of the Day of Atonement. 
These and any other particular offerings were given for particular reasons and for special release from the burden of the law. Through them, the Lord would bring them out of the bondage that they were in. But each of these special offerings required something exceptional as well. They required faith. For the Day of Atonement, it says in Leviticus 23, 28, and 29, and you shall do no work on that same day. For it is the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. On this momentous and august day, which came each year, they were to do nothing but rest and afflict their souls. But this was totally up to them. They would be scattered all throughout the land of Israel, and for many, nobody but they alone would know if they had actually refrained from work and food, and if they had also actively afflicted their souls. In other words, this day of days was a day of faith. It would be between their hearts and God. Would they come by faith in their minds to Jerusalem and accept the atoning sacrifice which was being made for them? Or would they continue on in their own futile attempts at pleasing God and or just living life without any regard to him, ignoring his word and trusting in their own supposed righteousness? Likewise, with the sprinkling of the water of purification from the red heifer, the person had to stand and allow himself to be sprinkled. The word used there for the action is not the normal word for sprinkling that was found elsewhere in the same passage. Rather, the word zarak, a scattering, is used. It is the scattering which is caused by a sprinkling. And more, in the Hebrew, the word is passive, not active. A more literal translation would say something like the person received as a scattering on him. To be purified, the person had to receive what was to be done. It could not be obtained by self, but it had to be imparted by another. No works of their own were involved. Does anybody remember what I read you from Isaiah 52 and 53 a minute ago where it says, He shall sprinkle many nations? He is the sprinkler. We are the receiver of the sprinkling. We receive the scattering from the sprinkling. Each sacrificial allowance was given to Israel to bring them out of the bondage that they were in. If the requirements of the rite which accompanied the sacrifice or offering were met, release from the infraction of the law was realized in that person. In this, then, the Lord could say, I have brought you out. He didn't need to provide these avenues of release. And being a codified law, only those avenues of release were acceptable. The parameters of the law are found within the law, not within any change or addition to it, by the recipients of the law. It is an important point to understand. When a covenant is made, and when the parameters are set, no man may add to it, and no man may annul it, except as defined within the covenant itself. It is important for Israel today, who are still bound by this law. The precepts in the Talmud are ineffective for the removal of sin. Does everybody understand that? They're still under the law of Moses. He has got them bound in that bondage. And they went and they codified their own Jewish law through the Talmud and said, well, you can receive forgiveness through repentance and through, you know, teshuvah and doing deeds of righteousness and all that. It doesn't work that way. They agreed to the covenant. They are bound by that covenant. With this understanding, the law, though providing release for individual infractions, remained a bondage to the people, even in their times of release. How is this? It is because the provisions of the law were only as good as the committing 
of a new infraction. The requirements of the law still stood, and for each new infraction, a new and separate release was required. Everybody got that? If I sin today, I do something wrong, I got to go down and sacrifice, you know, a goat for my sin. Tomorrow I commit the same sin, guess what? I got to go do the same thing. I'm never out of the bondage except release from that one time of sinning. And more, the annual day of atonement was just that. It was annual. It implied that none under the law had met the demands of the law. Though the Lord would bring them out from the infractions, he did not bring them out from the bondage of the law, at least not through their actions under the law. However, he was not only able to bring them out of their infractions, but he was also able to bring them out of their bondage. This is what the message of Scripture speaks to, and it is what all of Scripture is directed to. The Lord would bring them out. And it was for a reason. That reason was that he may bring us in. I have brought you out, my beloved redeemed. The burdens of the past are no more. Please do not doubt as if I had schemed to only bring you to a closed door. Rather, you have been brought out and I shall care for you. Each step of the way is a step with me at your side. Trust that I will do what I have promised to do. As on eagle's wings, you now currently ride. You shall be carried through to the end, and on a day that I have set for you, for your soul, I will send, and through the door, I will carry you through. Our second thought today, that he might bring us in. The Thursday before typing this sermon, I said to Burke Carrico before Bible study that I wanted to present something to you all that was different than a normal sermon. Rather than pick apart a passage which obviously looks to Christ and which could then be used to deepen your theology, I thought that the state of the times that we are living in necessitated a word to you that would build you up and to give you confidence before the Lord and in your own hearts and souls. Burke excitedly quoted Deuteronomy 6.23 because it was fresh on his mind from having read it that day. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. In his usually excited way, he's like a little kid when he talks about the Bible. He then repeated, he brought us out that he might bring us in. Yes, that will do. Thank you, Burke Carrico. The Lord didn't just bring Israel out of Egypt in order to bring them into another permanent form and type of bondage. No, the law is merely an incidental step on the way to bringing them in. But into what? The answer is their inheritance. Canaan was the immediate promise, and the Lord would fulfill what he had promised. But for any who have followed the sermons on the books of Moses, Canaan is not an end in and of itself. It is not the true goal. Rather, it is only a picture of something far more expansive and glorious. The author of Hebrews tells us this. He goes through several chapters of discourse concerning God's promised rest. He cites the 95th Psalm, which spoke of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It was a rebellion that brought about a denial of entry into Canaan for that generation. Only when all of those who had rebelled were dead would Israel enter into the land. But 
in his citation of the psalm, he wisely and carefully again notes David's first words. Today, today, if you will hear his voice, if David speaks of entering the Lord's rest, and if he lived hundreds of years after Israel entered Canaan, then Israel's entering Canaan could not have been an entrance into his promised rest. As he says in Hebrews 4, 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Joshua did bring Israel into Canaan, and yet Joshua did not bring them into the rest. Therefore, the promise of entering his rest must have still stood, and Israel must still have remained in bondage at that time. One plus one will always, always equal two in proper theology. And so how can one enter God's rest? The law was intended to bring life. As Moses said to the people, after finishing his final discourse and just before ascending Mount Nebo to die, these are some of his very last words. Listen to what he says. He specifically told them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Moses said that through obedience to the law, life would come. In its fulfillment, one could expect life. It is a truth that the Lord had told them almost 40 years earlier in Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But we have already seen that no man could do the things of the law. It is clearly implied in the Day of Atonement rites. One must observe the rite because the person had offended the awesome, terrifying, and glorious Lord who had spoken out the law which they had broken. But more specifically, and to the point at hand, every person who was under the law of Moses, every single one of them, died. With one exception, Elijah, who was taken to heaven for a set purpose, all of them died. But the law promised that the person who did the things of the law would live, and yet they all died. The testimony to the people's failure stands as a witness against them. Were it not for the mercy of the Lord, they would not have only died, but they would have perished as well. But even under the law, the promise of life for those who died under the law is seen. That is found, for example, in Daniel chapter 12. There the word says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The hope of the redeemed of Israel is the hope of man's promise, everlasting life. The Lord had brought them out to bring them in. And the Lord, through the giving of his son, has brought us out so that he may bring us in. God's promise of life, however, did not come at a small cost. Rather, it came in the giving of his son for us. Though man in general could not meet the demands of the law, a man in particular could. He was to be a special man, a perfect man, a man without sin. 
the Lord God himself united with his own creation to bring about what he had purposed. The Holy Spirit overshadowed a young Jewish girl, and in her womb, God united with humanity. Thus, the child is fully God, being born of God, and fully human, being born of the seed of man. But this union came about through a person bound under the constraints of the law. The very bondage which Israel stood under is the bondage to which God subjected himself to. The child, Jesus, was born under the law, but without the limitations of other men. With God as his father, he was born without sin, and thus he was qualified to fulfill the law. No other man was, because all were already born with sin. Jesus, however, had no such constraint on him. Being qualified to do so, however, he still had to prove himself capable. The demands of the law had to be met perfectly and entirely. But Moses said, he brought us out from there that he might bring us in. The process had been initiated, and so the process must come to its completion. This is the purpose of the Gospels. They are given to show that not only did Christ come, but that he came for us. Whether the world at large is under the law or not, the world at large will be judged by the law. The reason this is so is because the law is God's standard. The same holy God who spoke forth the Ten Commandments will have all flesh stand before him for judgment. The demand of the law, perfection, will be the standard, and for those who fail to meet that demand, they will be removed from his presence forever. One can perish apart from the law, or one can perish under the law, but the law reflects the nature of God. This is what Christ came to fulfill, God's standard. And this is what he did. Praise God. Jesus Christ was born under the law without sin. And Jesus Christ lived under the law as testified to in the Gospels without sin. And Jesus Christ died under the law without sin. The terrifying display of God, which Israel begged to no longer hear, came from God who is truly angry at sin. The anger of God for the sin of the world was directed to his own beloved son, not because he had sinned, but because you have sinned. We have sinned. Jesus Christ's death was not for himself, but for us. In having accomplished this, the law was fulfilled. The terms of the covenant were met in him, and thus the penalty of the law ended in him. How can we know that this is so? It is because of what the Lord said, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And it is what Moses repeated, it is your life. If Jesus Christ had not done the things of the law, he would be in the same place where all the multitudes of Israel who came before him still are to this day. He would have remained in the pit of death and corruption, but such is not the case. The reason we are here today is because this man born under the law, who lived under the law and who died because of the law, came out of the grave. Praise God, he came out of the grave, proving he fulfilled the law. In him is life, because he embodies the law. In his death, the law died with him. As he embodies the law, then he embodies all of the law, including the Day of Atonement and the purification of the red heifer. 
He is the day, our day of atonement, and he is the water of purification, our source of cleansing from sin. And as both of those had to be accepted and received by faith, so does the cleansing and atonement of Jesus Christ. God does not make salvation difficult for us, but the terms of the new covenant are set and cannot be procured in any other way than how he has determined. One must believe what God did in Jesus Christ. He must receive that offering by faith, and he must receive it apart from any personal merit. We come with empty hands, and we procure what God has done. This is the marvel of Resurrection Day. It is the day where the hope of man, since the moment of the fall of our first father, is realized. The Lord God brought Israel out in order to bring them in. And along with Israel, he said, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The whole world has the door open to them for the forgiveness of sin and for the purification of all unrighteousness. If they will just but believe, if they will just reach out and receive it. Have I left you after the work I have begun? Would I abandon you after only a part of the way? What would be the point? in the giving of my son, if I were to abandon you now. Tell me, I pray, I have not brought you just part of the way to then leave you wandering in a wilderness. Believe the past words when I did say that I will bring you in and your soul I will bless. The door lies yet ahead, but it remains ever open to you because you started in faith believing in my son. And through that door, I shall see you through. I shall complete the task. Yes, it shall be done. Have faith in me when things are rough. The end for you is secure. Your faith is enough. Our third thought today, not just part of the way. The Lord God said that he had brought Israel out that he might bring them in. We then saw that the land he promised to bring them into was not the promised rest of which he had spoken. Like the law itself, it was only a step on the way to the promise. Paul in the book of Galatians says that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. God brought Israel into the law to teach them, and thus us, of our desperate need for Jesus Christ. In coming to Christ, the promise is found and the rest is realized. That is stated explicitly in Hebrews 4.3 with the wonderful words, for we who have believed do enter that rest. If you have trusted Jesus with your eternal soul, the victory is won and the battle is complete. The promise is realized. Oh, how joyfully we sing of the great redemption of the blood and of the cross. We rejoice in the mighty workings of God, so sure of our salvation and the glory which lies ahead. And yet, how fearful are you today? How anxious are you of the events surrounding you? How discouraged are you at being shut up in your home, unable to go out, lacking toilet paper because someone who cares less about others than he does about the backside of his own body has through hoarding deprived you of this temporary comfort? Who is it that has pains in his body and who questions the Lord's goodness because of it? Who is it that says the Lord must not love him because his dog was killed? 
Which one of us will question God's goodness when his finances are lost through the current crisis or because a hacker came online and cleaned out his account? Is there someone here who wonders why God so unfairly allowed the coronavirus to come and steal away his life of ease instead of taking him out at the rapture? The nerve of God who would leave me like this. Who would talk this way? Who would think this way? Is the rest of your life, after the victory you have received, supposed to be one of luxury, ease, and passive rose petals? The Lord God has brought us out so that he may bring us in. He didn't say that he would start bringing us in and then stop short along the way. Why would God go through 4,000 years of preparation, of meticulous recording of human history, of working through Israel and the law, and then of the giving of his son? Think of it, the giving of his own son to bring us out just to fail to bring us in. Are we so faithless in ourselves that our faith will get us to Christ, but not truly to dwell in Christ? We started in faith. Shall we now expect sight? We have the word. Shall we now demand more? Rather, the victory in Christ is a victory which asks us to trust that what happens to us is not out of his control. It is a victory which belongs to us as an inheritance, and it is both ours and it must be waited upon. We have come here today to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ giving God the glory for what he has done. But we diminish that glory every time we allow our personal circumstances to stand above the significance of what Jesus Christ did for us. When we lose hope because of some worldly affliction, pain, trial, sadness, pestilence, or famine, we are putting the test of this world above our faith in the next. Let us remember always that the Lord our Lord Jesus Christ brought us out so that he may bring us in. He took the terror of the law with all of its associated punishments for disobedience upon himself. He took all of God's wrath concerning all of the sin in human existence upon himself. And he died so that we could meet the demands of the law in him and thus live the sin debt is paid, the pardon is granted, and the everlasting life has begun. It isn't that it will start some nebulously placed day in our future. No, it has begun right at the moment that we received Jesus Christ. The joys, plural, the joys of eternal life apart from this present life may be yet ahead. But the joy, the singular joy of eternal life, even during this life, should be ever with us. Don't lose heart. Don't be fearful. Don't be discouraged. And be anxious for nothing, but rather in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Each of us is bound to suffer. Each of us is bound to mourn. Each of us is bound to be burdened in heart and in soul. But each of us is to remain hopeful and hope-filled through those things. This, rather than diminishing the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, will add to its glory. 
God sent his son on a mission of love and mercy, and God now asks you to remain faithful to the pronouncement you made when you first called out to receive the gift and to be called into his brilliantly glorious light. God has brought you out so that he might, and indeed he will, bring you in. Have faith, be encouraged in the Lord, and be filled with the peace and calm of life in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the life he lived, the perfection that he displayed in our presence as human beings, a glory that which the people that beheld him couldn't even understand. Thank you that he went to the cross to take away what we have done wrong and the things we continue to do wrong in this life. And thank you that he went into the grave and rested quietly on the Sabbath and came out of that grave, glorious as it is, on the third day, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, proving that he is God, proving that he had accomplished the work set before him and who now has the name which is above every name, that ever was, that ever will be. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Thank you for him. We love you. We praise you. We glorify you for what you did through your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've got a closing verse here for you from Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. He's not leaving you. He took you out of there. He's going to get you in there, and he's with you every step of, step of the way. Next week is Deuteronomy 1. 34 through 46. That's a lot of verses, but we'll get through them. When done there, a new direction will come, happy and fresh. It's entitled Many Days in Kadesh. That'll be your fifth Deuteronomy sermon. Before I give you our closing poem, I've got a question for you. All people stand in relation to one man or one other man. Who are these two men? And what chapter of the Bible explains this? Who are the two men that we stand in relation to? Everyone on this earth stands in relation to one of two men. Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. But I don't know the verse. <laughs> you get a tire off this Maserati. You get a tire. It's 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Very good. Adam and Christ. Did you say it too? Okay, we got two. You get, here, let me give you a tire too. Here's your tire. Okay, I got a poem for you. I love this. You know, on uh, two weeks ago, I typed the resurrection sermon. I don't do them 10 weeks in advance like the other sermons. And I'm always so thankful for them because, you know, the, the sermons that we do are complicated. They hurt your head, and they take me between 9 and 15 hours to type. And I don't leave that desk until I'm done. Hedico has served me dinner many times at the desk, well, especially the Day of Atonement. That was the longest, I think, ever. But on typing this sermon, I sat down and I was done. I think I started it, I finished the commentary, probably started at five, and then I went for an hour to the mall and I came back and I was done by 10, 
You know, I feel so guilty. I feel almost unclean because the rest of the day I, I got to do something. But I love doing these Easter sermons because they give me a, a real a day off almost. And I copied the poem from the previous year every year. So you get to hear the same poem and I didn't have to spend all day oh, typing yeah. a poem. So here we go. I'm, I'm telling you how wonderful it is to do these sermons. This is called a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel which was preached to you. It is also the one you received and on which you stand. It is the gospel of salvation, providing life that's new and which will carry you to the promised holy land. This is mostly from 1 Corinthians 15. What is delivered to you is what was before received, that Christ died for our sins according to God's word. He was buried and he rose, and so we have believed, and many witnesses testify to this message you have heard. Now, if Christ is preached that he has risen from the dead, how can some among you say the resurrection isn't true? If there is no resurrection after Christ was crucified and bled, then our faith as well as yours is certainly askew. And if so, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have wrongly testified of this mighty deed. And our faith is futile, no heavenly streets wheel trod. And we are still dead in our sins, fallen Adam's seed. Even more, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are gone, and we are the most pitiable creatures the world could ever look upon. But indeed, Christ is risen from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as death came through one man, Adam, our federal head, so Christ will make all alive our souls he will keep. But there is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all, and we will rise, as if to the sound of heavenly battle drums. Then comes the time when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when all rule, authority, and power have come to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, never more to bother. Then the Son will to the Father eternal rule extend. But you ask, what will we be like after our time of sleep? After we have been buried in corruption's pit so deep. Our body is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but raised in power. The resurrection story. The first man, Adam, became a living being, it is true. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, life to me and you. And as was the man of dust created so long ago, so are those likened unto him also made of dust. And as the man, the Lord from heaven, you know that we shall bear his image for eternity, just as we've discussed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed, and so heavenly streets we will trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed. Completion of the gospel story. Where, O oh death, oh, where is your sting? When Christ our Savior us to himself does he bring. Where, O oh Hades, oh, where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you've heard and saw and cling confidently to God's eternal word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Be of good cheer. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper 
directly from Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Think about it. Well, I'm giving you the instructions here. Think about what Christ did. Isaiah 52 and 3, Psalm 22 that he read earlier. The cross, the punishment, the anguish, all for our healing. All for our healing. We've all done wrong, and we're going to do wrong when we leave here today, and we're going to continue to do so until the day we die, and yet it's all heaped upon the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Thank God for Jesus Christ.